Hello, and welcome to Author Conversations, presented again by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Jonathan Foster, and today I'm talking with author Tracy Bliss. Tracy is the author of Saving Big Basin, which tells the intriguing story of how the state park came to be. Tracy, thanks for being on. It's a privilege to be here. Excellent. So, one of the cool things is I see that you have been a docent at Big Basin, and has a former docent myself, and now a volunteer at State Parks, I know it's a rewarding experience, and also know there's things which we may talk about later that can sadden you, but also there's a great deal of things that we learn that the public may not know, and we get really excited about it as people who love history, and we hope to share this history. Sometimes we share more of the history than people might want to know, and it gets on their nerves. Um, I know I do. Um, did you find all this out because you, you, uh, the book about the fi- founding of the park, all these intricate details about the history of the park. Um, did you find this out a lot because you were a docent and volunteering at the park? Well, the answer to that first begins with actually my docent assignment is at the sister park, Henry mm-hmm. Cowell Redwood State Park, which is part of the whole Santa Cruz Mountain Redwoods. So even though I've spent a lot of time at Big Basin, my docenting is at Henry Cowell. But the two parks are very much linked historically. So the answer is yes. I learned a lot. And how I learned a lot was with the questions that visitors would ask. For example, when I had a class of Stanford students, They came, this was three years ago, and the kinds of questions that they were asking me forced me to go much, much deeper into the history. So I felt like, on the one hand, being an emerita professor and a scholar, I can do that kind of research, but that on-the-ground opportunity to hear what people's questions are and what they're most interested in really helped to direct my research. And when you're a guide somewhere, a docent, people's questions can really vary. I know when I was at Drayton Hall here in in Charleston, you could have questions ranging from Revolutionary War, um, Civil War history at the house, to pets at the house. Um, It's just, it's, it's, so amazing what people um, come up with and the different things they could be interested in uh, when they visit a site. But it also is encouraging because you see that there's an interest that people have in learning about where you are. Exactly. And you really do have to have a broad-based perspective and then always try to bring it back to what is going to be relevant to them, the interpretation about this park and their experience. So I'm going to guess that you already know this, but the story of the founding of Big Basin, it could literally be a mini series, drama series somewhere. Oh, that's exactly right. Um, that's exactly right. And I've had um, I've had some interest shown um, uh, on that topic, and I hope that might be the next step. For right now, having this very thorough history where in the past, when the history of Big Basin has been written, it has been very narrow. It's taken the perspective of one great man accomplished this, and that is a mythology. So 
what I've tried to do is give the holistic picture of what an extraordinary statewide movement this was with people from all walks of life and especially women having a leadership role, which they'd never had before. But even before it's statewide, we got to go to the Midwest. We got to go to Minnesota. We got to talk about William Oh, yes. We've got to start with the beginning. So do you want me to start with that story? Yeah, let's go back to Minnesota. Let's talk about this guy. This guy is a character, and he is a bad guy. Oh, this guy guy is... Right. So the context of this is that the mixed ancestry Dakota Sioux needed to have their land rights secured as more and more settlers were pouring into Minnesota and was were wanting prime land. Congress did the right thing, and they created a law in 1854, which ensured the mixed ancestry Dakota Sioux um, land certificates. They were each given land certificates so they could get title to what had been their land. And if they chose not to use the certificates in Minnesota, they could be used anywhere in the United States for unclaimed government land. And the most important thing about the law was it said, these certificates are not transferable. But some bureaucrats somewhere in Minnesota developed this nefarious, really fraudulent scheme where they could, where land speculators could obtain the certificates from the mixed ancestry Dakota Sioux through powers of attorney and other ways. So what happened is this land speculator who'd moved to Minnesota uh, named William Chapman, he became an expert on these land certificates and bought them from the mixed ancestry Dakota Sioux for probably pennies on the dollar and amassed this hoard of certificates fraudulently, despicably, and used them to move to California, where his brother was a land agent and directed him to the best timberland left that had not yet been um, logged, which was Big Basin. So he used these certificates fraudulently obtained from the mixed ancestry Dakota Sioux to purchase the land in the best timberland in the basin. So he has it. He thinks he's going to become the timber king. He's all excited. He's making, he's amassing land all over California. But he works for an entire decade throughout the 1870s. And the big basin land is mountainous and it's remote. And he could not figure out a way to get, if the big trees were logged, to get the timber out the big basin. In other words, the land protected itself. It was not going to yield to um, being logged. (laughs) You think his brother would have helped him out with that, told him about that beforehand, you know, if his... Anyway, sorry. Keep going. I know. I know. Just and and just just the the perfect and I, it was so complicated. I kept when I was doing this research, I kept going, "Why hasn't somebody written about this before?" It it was such an 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 unbelievable scheme. And then I realized because it was so complicated, and they made it so complicated, so you couldn't track it. Um, 
But then he has to sell Big Basin because he cannot make a profit. He sells it in 1881. The the next company who buys it, they're going to put a railroad through, and they can't make it work. And then it gets in the hands of the largest, most powerful monopoly in California, the Southern Pacific Railroad. And people are so concerned. Oh, my gosh. They'll have the money. They'll have the resources. They can pull off putting a railroad through Big Basin. Um, going from the Santa Cruz Mountain Redwoods right to the ocean. I mean, not only that, if you think about the railroad too, they can run, they can run rail up, spurs up to get this wood down off, you know, off of these hills, exactly. off of these mountains. Exactly. So you can imagine those those few group of people who are mostly newspaper editors, who are profoundly concerned. Um, including Ralph Smith, the newspaper editor in San Mateo County. And what's going to happen? Instead, what happens is Leland Stanford, who was the senator, California senator at that point, he shocks everybody um, as the president of the Southern Pacific. And in 1889 says, no, we're going to make this land into a public park. Stanford University, he had just uh, founded it two years earlier, and he saw Big Basin as adjacent to the university as this beautiful public park, um, and that was his vision. So this idea of um, a park, that's, that's really where it all began um, in the 1880s when Big Basin could not become profitable, and Leland Stanford just completely changed the direction. Now, interestingly enough, when Leland Stanford was the governor, the Republican governor back Mm in the 1850s, he had already said, we need to be doing something to save our forests. So this wasn't a new idea for him. Okay, so where shall we go from there? Well, okay, so... Because there's some there's something else I found really interesting in this area of the book, and it involves some family drama, which I found interesting. And before we get to the community and the ladies working in the community who help become really saviors of the forest too, um, let's talk a little bit about Timothy Hopkins and how he plays into the story, if you don't mind. Oh, I'm no, isn't it the most extraordinary um, story? It's so fascinating yeah, that okay. it's, this, it's like I said, a drama that needs to be you know, Hulu so or Amazon needs to, get to me that here is the adopted son of Mark Hopkins, uh, you know, one of the big four and who many people considered them robber barons. That's up for debate. But the Timothy Hopkins was the adopted son. And And Timothy Hopkins, the only son, the only child, the adopted son, and he he does everything right by his mother. He protects her interests in the Southern Pacific Railroad when Mark Hopkins dies, and he is Leland Stanford's protege. Mm -hmm. Well, Timothy Hopkins is doing everything right until his mother marries a... Um, designer, 22 years younger than her, than she, from um, New York. And 
they immediately, he gets power of attorney away from Timothy for Mary Hopkins, Timothy's adopted mother, and basically they turn against Timothy, who had just been the good son. And when Mary dies two years later, she says in her will that she has deliberately left Timothy completely out of her will and left everything to this interloper from New York. (laughs) Well, San Francisco society is in a complete uproar. Leland Stanford is not going to let his protege be left out to dry, right? Mm -hmm. And so they take the um, stepfather um, uh, to court, and the judge says, and the stepfather admits that he was partially interested in Mary Hopkins for her vast fortune. And the judge says, well, that doesn't make any difference. She still left all her money to you. And so then what happens is the judge says the, the, the will stands. And so Timothy Hopkins, with the help of Leland Stanford, go, says, we're going to take this out of court because the national publicity was so negative about this guy named Searles and what he had done um, that public opinion was totally against him. And so they finally settled out of court. And what does Timothy Hopkins ask for? And what does he get? He gets the prime timberland uh, in Santa Cruz County, which included the best of Big Basin. (laughs) So that is such an extraordinary story that that's what he wanted. And that was the fulfillment also of Leland Stanford's vision that this land would someday become a public park. I kind of, you know, it's really, and it's kind of a thing we kind of, a story we kind of need right now too is it's a, it shows you how out of really bad intentions something good can come out of because uh, that was that's ex- yeah. you're exactly right johnny to to look at it that way and that the that uh timothy hopkins was so quiet and so behind the scenes and so well-meaning and really waited for exactly the right timing. Because then, once he gets the land, what does he do? All right, during the 1990s, 1890s, excuse me, he just sits on it. He doesn't do anything except allow the Stanford botanist, who was to become the world's expert on Big Basin, to go out and do field work at Big Basin and take all these Stanford students um, on the Stanford Outing Club to help make trails on the land. Nobody else was was allowed on it. There was, no, of course, no logging. And so he's, like, setting the stage. He doesn't know, you know, what's going to happen, but he is setting the stage by protecting this and not letting it become commercialized. And I think that that whole idea of... Um, just the the stamina of taking it away from the people who were going to commercialize it and could not, and then refusing to allow any of it to be commercialized. There's that wonderful piece in the book where he puts a fence up so his neighbor 
cannot get his own logs out of Big Basin, um, <laughs> which is basically saying, I'm not, I'm not logging here. And you know what? You're not going to log here either. It's, uh, you know, it's, so this is really the beginning of starting to set up what's to come. Will you now take us further along to where this becomes or starts to become a state park and how did all these people come together for this to happen? Exactly. And I, I do think that by the late 1890s, uh, there was this awareness in the counties. You know, in the book, I have that map um, uh, early on where it shows San Mateo County, Santa Clara County, Santa Cruz County, how these three counties that basically surround Big Basin, how the residents of each of those counties, you know, up until this time, everybody had this thinking where our resources are inexhaustible. You know, our forests are so plentiful, they're inexhaustible. And all of a sudden, the amount of damage that had been done, they were really noticing it. And they were also noticing it in terms of how it was affecting the rainfall. And that wasn't through scientific studies. It was through their own observations. Oh, my goodness, the more trees that are being cut, you know, and the the redwoods are considered a rainforest, the more redwoods that are being cut, the less rainfall we're having. And they were... That on these in these three different counties, each having their different um, groups of activists, each one of them were very aware of this, and they all happened to coalesce uh, in um, in 1900. But it was because Timothy Hopkins had laid the groundwork, and he was protecting the land. If that hadn't happened, the coalescing of these activist groups, uh, I seriously doubt it would have made any difference. The land had to be protected, and it had to be ready to become public land for the activism to make a difference. And who are the active activists who are? I know that work is sound bad today, but this was this was a completely different time. These were people who wanted to. These trees were spectacular and are spectacular. Will be spectacular. We'll get to that in a second. Exactly. But who are so, these? The ladies, really. So, so in Santa Cruz County, um, uh, my my relatives, my ancestors, were really key to the movement um, in terms of both leadership. And their commitment to wanting the, tr- the Santa Cruz Mountain Redwoods accessible to everyone. In Santa Cruz, because Big Basin is located in Santa Cruz County, it was, it was not so much as this is a cause as this is our home. Mm-hmm. This is what we, we believe in. This is our way of life. And, so, and also the newspaper owner and editor in Santa Cruz he was absolutely diligent from the beginning, constantly informing everyone. His name was A.A. A. Taylor. And he ultimately becomes a member um, of uh, the state parks, um, the board of governor, governing the state parks um, because of his unbelievable commitment. In, at Stanford University, the bot, chair of the botany department, William Dudley, 
was just essential because he was the expert on Big Basin. He was the secretary for the Sierra Club, and he had all these Sierra Club members who had been working with John Muir. He was keeping them constantly informed about Big Basin. Which is amazing in and of itself to have that name connected. Pardon me? John Muir is amazing in and of itself to have that name connected with Big Basin, too. Uh, well, and John Muir wasn't working at all on Big Basin. He was off working on Yosemite. Mm-hmm. But the Sierra Club, which was which was based in San Francisco, so many of the members of it were academics and in the surrounding colleges and universities. And so William Dudley was giving them data-based information. He was showing them this is where logging has gone in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And if we don't do something, he was showing all these maps of this is what it will look like in 20 years. So the academic community was totally on board, thanks to William Dudley um, of Stanford. And then you have in San Jose, the extraordinary San Jose Women's Club, which there were all these women's organizations uh, all throughout California and the United States. There was Daughters of the American Revolution. There was the Women's Christian Temperance Union, the suffragists in California, the Native Daughters of the Golden West. And these various women organizations were not unified Okay, they had different agendas on different topics. And in California in um, 1896, the attempt to get um, the the suffrages, just attempt to get the law passed for women to have the right to vote failed. But you had this network already in place. So with Big Basin, what happened is these women put all these their differences aside, and this was especially true at the San Jose Women's Club, that um, went from like 10 members um, to 200 members, and they all were committed to saving Big Basin. So it was this unifying, Big Basin became this symbol. This is our state tree. This is, this is the symbol of California. And they all put aside their differences and said, this is going to become our cause. And three of the women from the club were journalists, and they became the writers and the publicity arm for the movement. And then in May, on May 1st of 1900, uh, the, Santa Cruz, uh, the Santa Cruz leadership, uh, William T. Jeter, who had been lieutenant governor, Um, he got all these people together at Stanford, the academics and the business community, and they, um, with William Dudley playing a key role, and they began the movement. And then from there, it just blossomed and flourished because it was completely bipartisan, and you had all of these individuals who were personally deeply committed to the cause. I think one of the interesting aspects for me in looking at it was that three of the key women, they came from families who had very strong abolitionist backgrounds. So these women were used to 
the long fight. They were used to um, the extraordinary need for stamina and perseverance in a ca- in a cause. And, you know, they'd come from families that were um, of deeply committed individuals. And I do think that played a role. So you then have the creation of the Semper Byron's Club, which was the public relations arm um, and all the photography that was coming out about Big Basin, articles in all the newspapers, and the movement takes off. And in three months in 1901, all of these people working nonstop at the California legislature Um, Behind the scenes, Timothy Hopkins and his partner are making all kinds of concessions to make the purchase of the land possible. I'll give you one example. So the legislature said, we don't have the money to buy this. The coffers are low, and there's just not the money to buy Big Basin. And so what Timothy Hopkins and his um, co-partner offered was we will allow the state to make payments over a five-year period. We do not have to have it in one lump sum. And they had already um, suspended all cutting, so they were already losing plenty of money Mm -hmm. um, to make it possible for the state to buy it. So the legislation to create California Redwood Park, it was a huge victory. However, they had no idea, they had no playbook, how the kinds of enormous obstacles that they were going to face after the legislation passed. Yeah, and that's just, and that we're just, you know, scratching the surface of the book. But now, because we want people to read it, we want people to dive into it and dive into the story, but also because we're approaching the 30-minute mark, and I don't know about you, but I've had a lot of fun talking um, and getting to know you. Um, But we need to talk about what's happening now, what has happened recently and what's happening now. Um, If people don't know the story of Big Basin and its state, um, let us know. Uh, Tell us what's happened recently. Well, a year ago... We had the CZU Lightning Complex fire, and the there it was all over California. There were there were lightning strikes, um, but especially in the Bay Area um, and in San Mateo and Santa Cruz County, um, these lightning strikes um, on August seventeenth uh, created these small fires and. Within three days, those small fires had become a major conflagration. There were not the resources um, from Cal Fire to possibly manage the fire. One quote that I have in the book was um, a top person from State Park saying, we have the resources to manage a 5,000-acre fire, and we have a 60,000-acre fire. So that that and there were massive evacuations all throughout Santa Cruz County, people living near Big Basin. And um, by the the lightning strikes were um, on a a Sunday morning. And by that Tuesday night, uh, 
the whole park was engulfed and 97% of the park by five weeks later had been completely charred. So that, and there are still at this moment when I speak, there are still trees that are burning inside and to uh, state parks. I just so take my hat off to these incredible employees, these incredible staff members who are making sure that they're watching the trees 24 seven. What the commitment of California state parks is that we cannot cut down trees simply because they look like they're dead or they seem to be burned. Yeah. We have to do everything we can to preserve these trees because redwoods are fire retardant. They are resilient. And what my book shows that from the 1904 fire, they did grow back. And yet in, 19, in that instance, the state cut a lot of trees that they shouldn't have cut. So now they're doing everything they can to protect those, um, to protect the trees that do not need to be cut but have been badly damaged. So there's um, a video that just came out that says one year later, and that's on the California State Parks website, Reimagining Big Basin. And it's also available through Friends of Santa Cruz State Parks uh, called That's My Park. And it's a 13-minute video which shows where shows the devastation and shows all of the actions that state parks and its partners have been taking to move forward. And we've now started the process of what will Big Basin look like going forward? What is the reimagining process? You know, these is trees, you know, I've never seen the redwood in person, um, but even I realize... And, you know, and up front, I like to be in nature. I like to go to the beach. That's my thing. I like to fish. I like to be in the maritime forest we have here. Um, you know, but at night, I'm going inside. I'm not going to go camp or whatever glamping is. Right. Um, I've been blessed with the house, and I'm going to use it. But these trees are something special. And it's amazing that the residents back then in the area had the foresight to know this and preserved it. Um, the photographers, you know, from the late, late 1800s, early 1900s, coming so from different areas, far away, coming out to photograph, you know, the trees in, in all these parks in California. Um, the parks became right. state and parks. And when you think about the, the redwood, and it's so much fun being a docent at the redwoods, because you just, you, you, got, you get to say, I mean, the young redwoods, I mean, you know, a redwood becomes a teenager when it's 800 years old, That's right? insane. And so, so, but it it gets its character around a thousand years old, and it becomes <laughs> more and more beautiful with every with every hundred years. And to me, and what I always like to share with uh, people visiting the parks is. The redwood forest, there's no better metaphor for community. Their roots are, they are, they have very shallow roots. Their roots are all connected underground. They have, they 
they really take care of each other um, in in very interesting kinds of ways. And uh, they are um, an extraordinary community. And I think there's so much to learn from them. They also are self-healers. A redwood can be extremely damaged. And then we have examples of people who put huge windows. They actually cut windows in redwood trees. And the outside bark grew back over, (laughs) so you can't even see where the window was, but you can see it from the inside of the tree. So they are such examples to us of um, so much of 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 what is good in um, in the world in terms of all of the things that I've just said. You might have a scar, but it can heal over. Pardon me. I said you might have a scar, but it can heal over. No doubt about it. It can heal over, and it never you never know it was even there and these redwoods just continue and um that's also what makes them so valuable and why it was so catastrophic um during the after the san francisco earthquake of 1906 when everybody wanted to rebuild with redwood and this movement this incredibly successful movement was so threatened because red the price of redwoods had just skyrocketed so it's um it's it's an amazing story of the that the trees themselves are such wonderful examples of endurance and the people that have cared for them are such uh inspiring examples of enduring commitment absolutely tracy thanks for being on Oh, it has been so much fun. You ask great questions and so fun that you're, uh, you in South Carolina are um, as uh, concerned and, and advocating for your forest as we are. And before I let you go, let me ask you this. Is there anywhere people can go to donate money or anything online? Um, yes. That the um, if you go to my website, um, I mean you don't. My website doesn't have that information, but on my website, uh, it does. Um, it does give you the link to Santa Cruz Friends of Santa Cruz State Parks. But the Friends of Santa Cruz State Parks just go to that to their website, Friends of Santa Cruz State Parks, and they have a fire fund, which um, also supports. I mean, so many of the state park um, personnel had their houses in Big Mm. Basin, and they all burned. So in addition to losing Big Basin, losing their place of work, they also lost their homes. And so I'm doing a major fundraiser for them um, in October, and uh, anybody who wants to contribute to the fire fund at Friends of Santa Cruz State Parks, it couldn't be a better cause. All right, friends of Santa Cruz State Parks. All right, let's get out there and try to help everybody. Tracy, thanks again. Thank you so much, Johnny. It's been great. Thanks again, Tracy, and thanks to you, the audience, for listening. Big Basin will be available beginning on September 6th online at ArcadiaPublishing.com and wherever local books are sold. I want to thank, as always, J.M. Bill's Unnamed Band Project for the show's theme song. You can find them online at J.M. Bill's Unnamed Band Project on Facebook and Instagram. 
If you have questions for me or show suggestions, feel free to reach out at ArcadiaAuthorConversations at gmail.com. I'll speak with you again soon.